Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Turing Incomplete. I'm here with Pam Selly. Hi, I'm Pam and I'm Pamasaur on Twitter. The Web of War is my blog. Jervon Dari. Hey, you can find me at Jervon on Twitter. That's J-E-A-R-V-O-N. Justin Campbell. Hi, Justin Campbell on Twitter. And I'm Len Smith. I make new on Twitter and all over the internet. So Pam, you wanted to talk about uh, Alan Turing? Yeah, so I mean, before we kind of get into the topic for the week, since since this week was Alan's Turing's birthday, uh, I got a, a request from from people on Twitter that we we give a, a shout out, given our our namesake, that we are in fact Turing incomplete. Um, so <laughs> so Justin actually uh, went and did some some research on some Turing facts, and I know that so Alan Turing, I mean, of course, besides being one of the the great mathematicians of the modern age. Uh, the Turing, the Turing test was also recently in the news too. So I feel like his his legacy just keeps coming back. Yeah, so, um, I guess chronologically, he was a what was he mathematician? Um, yeah, he would be. I would say Alan. So Alan Turing was a mathematician because when Alan Turing was doing computing, we didn't have computer <laughs> scientists yet. But so in, everyone doing computer science is a mathematician. Yeah, but in, in the thirties, he came up with this. Um, thing known as a Turing machine that basically read a, a, in air quotes, infinite strip of paper and read symbols off of it and based on the symbols did something else and could do that for infinity and using that could effectively compute anything. Uh, and then later in the, th- or I think also in the 30s, um, Alonzo Church came up with the Lambda Calculus, which was also uh, deemed that it could compute anything that was effectively computable. So the Lambda Calculus could emulate a Turing machine, and a Turing machine could emulate Lambda Calculus. So um, a Lambda Calculus was Turing complete, meaning that it could emulate a Turing machine. And a Turing machine could emulate a Turing machine as well, with enough abstraction on top of it. And as turtles all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so this is used to like explain like how computers work. Like If you just have a like a vector of memory, and you have a, again, air quotes, Turing machine, reading that memory, it could compute anything, like computers do today. Uh, then, in the 40s, he worked on the, the British had a thing called the, I'm going to pronounce it, the Bombay, B-O-M-B-E, which was a machine that used to uh, decrypt Nazi messages that were encrypted with the Enigma machine. So he was credited with making those significant contributions into cracking the Nazi code. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the also one of the fascinating things about Turing is just that a lot of his work was classified, some of it even up until twenty twelve. It was so important that they that the British kept it out of the archives for for so many years. So apparently Winston Churchill said that uh, Alan Turing made the single biggest contribution, in quotes, uh, to Allied victory over the war. Yeah, there was an interesting uh, thing I read about how <clears throat> they only had a few of these machines and Alan Turing needed more of them to uh, decrypt more messages and they weren't, they weren't keeping up fast enough. There was only like, I think, three or four at the time and nobody above him in rank was helping enough. So he wrote a letter to Winston Churchill uh, stating his, his desire for more, more of these uh, machines to decrypt the Nazi code. So... Uh, Winston Churchill like gave some declaration that he gets all the resources that he that uh, 
should be available to them. And I think at the end of the war, there was like a few hundred of these machines. Yeah, I mean, pretty cool in general. Yeah, and then I forget if it was uh, before or after the war, but he also came up with the Turing test, which is a <clears throat> if you are typing to something or somebody, uh, basically a computer that would pass the Turing test, um, a human on the other end wouldn't be able to tell if they were talking to a computer or a human. So that was in the news recently because there's a bet. What's it, the long, long now bet? Um, uh, a pessimist and an optimist basically made a bet that um, by 2029 we will have machines that can, or AI that can pass the Turing test. And I think in the past month or so, somebody claimed to create an AI that could pass it, but it turned out not to be the case. Well, I mean, they had a they had a competition, and part of the kind of the rules is that you have to to trick at over thirty percent. That's considered the significant level. Mm. Um, and previously, it has been passed at like twenty nine percent, but this this past one, the I believe the the issue is that it's it was criticized because it was the computer was pretending to be a teenager whose first language was not English. <laughs> so it was like, I'm pretty sure, or it was, I might not have been that it was English, but I know it was something where it was like, there was a, a cultural clash and it was almost like, wait, like, is that cheating? <laughs> so like, if you lower the expectations, <laughs> did you still win? <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, you know, it's just, it's always, it's exciting to think about, about AI. And I mean, there's so much science fiction that's based on, you know, and then the, you know, M. Night Shyamalan twist was the, you were dealing with a computer the entire time. Uh, and, you know, figuring out that you were dealing with an AI, uh, over time is part of the unveiling of the mystery. I'll have to remember what, ah. Uh, what book did I read that that was really good at? Um, the but it was not The Matrix, not <laughs> a book. It's just like a fighting movie. Uh, but no, it was, uh, it was, it was really good science fiction. Very, very good. But I mean, so if we, uh, do we want to move into the, the topic for this week, Len? Sure. So I think this week, uh, we wanted to talk about the workflow of uh, our website, which is available at Turing.cool. So I had always been like a static site Luddite. I always believed if you wanted to host content, you should just install WordPress. So I've just always kind of shied away whenever anyone was talking about Jekyll or Middleman. But Justin set up our website, and I really love the workflow. Oh, and awesome. I just really love the idea. I mean, being a big Git fan too, I love the idea that my static content is not sitting in a database. It's sitting in a Git repository and I could do uh, diffs on it. But Justin, do you want to tell us about how you set up uh, our workflow? Yeah, I guess there's <clears throat> two parts to it. There's like middleman itself, um, which middleman's yeah. a, a Ruby gem. Yeah, Millman's a Ruby gem. It is a static site generator, so you can use things that we're used to in Rails and other frameworks and languages, like um, like nice templating um, or you know nicer asset compilation, like um, using SAS or CoffeeScript. 
uh, you can use these things that require computation to then generate static assets that you then upload to wherever you're going to host the site. Um, or you can also lazily generate them like on Heroku. So yeah, so you, we have um, all of our episodes are in Markdown and there's something called a YAML front matter. YAML is like a, almost like JSON, like a, a metadata format or, or I guess a data encoding format. So at the top of every Markdown file, there's a special blob that says like what the title of the episode is, how many seconds are in it, is it explicit, you know, did Pam curse or not. Then there's the Markdown itself and then we have like a index which you know lists all the episodes and there's also a template to render each episode and it also has nice things like the the front matter has tags so we can find any post by tags and what happens is when you generate the site it parses all this into static html so for every possible um page somebody could go to it will generate the actual html for that page so like for a tag listing on tdd it'll find all the articles for tdd and put them in a list for that page. So yeah, Millman is um, pretty great. I like it a lot for static sites. Uh, we host the site on S3, which is a very cheap way to host a website. You can make a bucket in S3, which is globally unique. So we have the buckets turing.cool and also beta.turing.cool. And you can point your DNS to those bucket names using CNames and basically point turing.cool to this basically a, a, a disk drive on Amazon that will render all the, that will just return all the assets that the web browser requests yeah that's the part of it I really loved I didn't realize how easy that was to do in s3 I've always used like free Heroku hosting and then had to go through the pain of you know when I don't have enough traffic setting up something to, to ping the site every minute or so so the Heroku doesn't shut my barely looked at site down. <laughs> yeah Middleman has a add-on, right? To easily upload stuff to S3. It's pretty much just add the gem and then your keys. Yeah, there there is uh there are add-ons for Middleman for deploying different places. We don't use those, but I have I have seen them out there. Cool. I really love our deployment too. Yeah. So uh, Travis CI is a open or well, not open source. It's a free for open source, which our website is open source. Uh, CI server. So every time we push to GitHub, it builds the site, which um, installs all the dependent gems, like if we use like Compass or the Middleman blog plugin, and then it, it compiles the site to a build directory. And then at the end of the build on Travis, you can set deploy parameters. So it takes the site and uploads all the assets to S3 for us whenever the build passes. If you had an error, it would, like in your HTML or, or something, that prevent the build from succeeding, or if you had like a test suite on your static site, um, if that failed, it would not upload. So I'm a big believer in continuous deployment. So basically, anybody can contribute to the website, and as, as soon as it's merged to master, it gets deployed to train.cool. And then um, the other neat thing is that for every branch that's pushed, it will also deploy to beta.turing.cool. So as we're working on the site, we can kind of test changes ahead of time before we merge into master in a production-like environment. That only works for us, though, because the way that... Um, so so to, to make all this work, Travis needs to know about your Amazon um, S3 account, like the the keys, the IAM keys for Turing.cool. 
So Travis CI has a way to encrypt keys for only only that repository, that project. So so basically, the deploys only work from the repository that Travis CI is attached to. So if you open a pull request, it will test the code, but it won't deploy. We also use this on uh, the same deploy deployment method on uh, Philly RB's website, which Jervon runs. Yeah, we've had good luck with it, uh, having people contribute and then looking at the beta site and checking if it's broken or not, and then just merging it. And all these tools are free, except for S3, which is a few cents probably for bandwidth, right? Yeah, it's very cheap. And you can also, um, yeah, so S3 is hosted, I believe we're in North Virginia, um, availability zone, but you can also put something called CloudFront in front of it, which globally distributes your, your HTML and your CSS and JavaScript assets so that um, when everybody requests globally that they'd be a little faster. We don't use that, but we could also add that at some point. And the Travis CI component is free because all of our content, our middleman website, is open source on GitHub. Right. Yeah. There's also Travis CI for private repositories, which I believe is, I think it starts at $129 a month. But there's also other CI services. I really love Travis versus other CI solutions like Jenkins because, uh, or like TeamCity, because Travis uses a YAML configuration that sits in, a, in the root of the project so that changes to your CI, your, your build, are actually in source control, they're code reviewed, you can, you know, see history of what was changed, you can, and then having less state like on the CI server itself and having it all in the project uh, allows you to reason about what's happening in the build a lot easier, I think. So why pick Middleman over Jekyll? I don't know. Middleman is way easier. Is it? Yes. Jekyll... It's hard to get up and running. Middleman is pretty much just install the gem. You kind of have a, a working site. But uh, also, most people that use Jekyll just use Octopress. And then everybody blocked. Or everybody's site looks the same. But Middleman is easily customizable. And also, uh, I feel like Middleman has a better ecosystem and more documentation. I think those are the three things that would allow you, oh, that you, why you would want to use Middleman first. Have you guys tried Jekyll? I've helped out with projects. I've used it. I mean, almost all the static site generation stuff just feels like personal preference. I mean, if I guess you could just say that about anything, though. But it's almost like the static site generation process is just like an, it's a direction of a build process. So instead of rolling your own build process uh, from scratch, you can use one of these static site generation deals, and it's still just it's just a build process. You mean versus just writing HTML from scratch? Yeah, or, you know, writing your HTML or, you know, other templating language and using your own artistically crafted grunt process <laughs> to make a build process. But that's just, you know, there's no prizes for doing it. So since you have stuff like Middleman, that you might as well use it. Yeah, any, I think we're something like anything that generates the HTML ahead of time and you just upload. Like you're not running Ruby or Python or another or JavaScript on the server side to host everything. It also makes uh, requests much faster because there's nothing to do on the server side. It's just return the file. Yeah, just once you once you built, you did all the work already. Yeah. I looked up pricing for my S3 service. This is across all my buckets, but I don't have that many. Um, but it's been $0.08 cents for the month of June. So companies, if you want to sponsor Turing.cool... 
can cost you right now the low, low price of eight cents per month. Cool thing about Middleman also is you can have dynamic content. So you can interpolate some stuff or run some Ruby code at generation time. Yeah, I mean, like all the um, the the rendering of the like index and the listings, that's all just Ruby interpolated in, in, in Slim. We use Slim. I quite like Slim. What is Slim? It's an alternative to Haml, and I believe it's faster than Haml, like significantly. Is that right? I've heard that too. I believe that they did some, some tests on it, but I, I found that interesting, learning learn about Slim, I think, last year, uh, just because uh, I heard, uh, oh shoot, uh, the, the Hamel guy, uh, he was saying that the reason why you had to put percentage signs in front of HTML elements um, was the goal was to uh, annoy people so that they would use classes and IDs. Uh, and theoretically go in the direction of better HTML instead of just like writing div, 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 div. And, uh, and then, you know, this thing called semantic HTML came out and it actually is, is pretty nice if you, if you write tags other than divs to describe your, your document. So, so Slim does not have, uh, percentage signs in front of its, so it's kind of like it's such that they percent a period or a um, or, or a, a hash. hash. Yeah, it, a hash for an ID, period for a class, and a percentage sign for an element. And then anything else is just text. Yes, everything else is interpreted as plain text. Yeah, because it's just like yeah, it's like it's white space strict. Right. So. Right. For anyone who hasn't used like either of these templating languages, um, both like if you indent a level, uh, write a div tag. Indent another level. Uh, that div tag will encompass everything until you stop indenting. Yeah. So because it's it's white space strict, you don't have to remember to write closing tags. Right. And it, so it also just you know, in terms of your file length, it's just nice because you basically almost you probably got rid of like a third of your file because you didn't have to have a new line for every uh, closing tag. So so I I find them easier to read, but it, it takes a while to get used to it. Once you try them, though, you never go back. It's funny how personal the preference can be. Uh, even though Slim and Hamel are pretty similar, uh, I had always used Hamel. And starting a project that uh, a few months ago that used Slim, I just hated the, the Slim look. <laughs> and then, like four months later, I look at Hamel. I'm like, oh, it's so ugly. <laughs> What's that JavaScript one that looks like Slim? Jade. Jade. It's Jade. It's also like yeah. Skim, right? Oh, I mean, there might be like a straight up port. I just know. So Jade is in the same kind of direction. There are differences. Okay. Yeah, we use uh, Skim on a project for its slim templating in JavaScript. Oh, okay. So I've heard rumors of this, and I was trying to find an official blog post, but I think non pretty slim is a little faster than ERB also at times. And I found a blog post, and I put it in the show notes, but I'm not sure how trustworthy it is. <laughs> I mean, if it's on the internet, it's trustworthy, Jerron. I don't know what you're talking about. I know. What other solutions have you guys used for um, hosting a site, but you don't want to like use Rails or Django or some other heavy, heavy framework? WordPress. WordPress? 
Yeah, I mean, what you were saying, Ben, I think you were saying that earlier, that just, like, if you want to throw up a website and not think too hard about it, just do WordPress. And mm -hmm. it really is, like, eh, it's fine. It's, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why it's, like, the most popular website platform in the world. And do you usually host your own, or do you um, use, like, WordPress.com or some other hosting service? You can get a really cheap account at something like DreamHost. It would be, like, $5 a month or something. Yeah, because they 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 really like love hosting WordPress people because you because generally people who use WordPress aren't using a whole lot of load. Mm. So, you know, if you have someone who's putting WordPress on your boxes and they probably aren't gonna tax your their their little corner of your server grid. Actually, that's 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 my personal you know guessing at their motivations because it's always if you uh, I always notice that if you go to one of those one of those cheap like cheaper hosting sites and then you go to like their special WordPress landing page their WordPress landing page always has like a nice discount <laughs> so instead of paying like eight dollars a month like the rest of the plebeians you get to pay like 499 because you're not actually running any processes yeah because you aren't really using your little part of the grid or at least like I would say like the vast majority of people who are like you know I I need a website for my you know shark well, that would be too fancy. I was about to say charcuterie business, and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> Pam, that's, that is too bourgeois. <laughs> I have bourgeois tendencies. Uh, what's a regular business people have? A tailor? Is that too bourgeois? <laughs> pet grooming. Pet grooming. That's, that's super bourgeois. <laughs> like, Do you know any charcuterers? I mean, yes. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, I know places stuff. that do charcuterie in the real world. Yes. <laughs> My Rails consultancy. Oh. <laughs> yes, I actually do know quite a few uh, developers who do charcuterie. <laughs> Surprisingly enough. But yeah, but anyway, that you, you know, I need a website and it's going to have four pages and like 20 hits a month. That's like, that's a a great little piece of small business if that's your your market angle. But this is like one of the reasons I've been converted to loving static site generators to think that my content's sitting in, you know, some cheap MySQL database somewhere that I have to be responsible to back that content up as opposed to uh, with middleman. Just I know that everything's versioned in, in, in Git. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely is a perk that's just, you know... Honestly, really, that, that is something I thought about, too, is that you most, I feel like the majority of security issues for, you know, your average Joe on the web are because you have a database. <laughs> so if you don't have a database, then you don't have database problems. So, but I mean, I actually, my, my blog is hosted on WordPress, and I do use a, a dedicated WordPress hosting service. So part of it is, well, and that I, you know, I got a deal on getting there. Uh, but uh, they they maintain all the versioning. They do daily backups and everything. So they, they handle a lot of the headachey stuff. Does that make like, a service call? If everything blew up, then I have everything backed up. And if I decide to bail out, I can use uh, Mike Ball's WP to middleman gem. Oh, yeah, that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, so our, our uh, member of Philly RB, Mike Ball, has a, a gem that actually, if you are a converter to static site generators from Middleman, uh, he actually has a gem that'll help you do it. So it's, uh, it's pretty neat, pretty neat project. I actually was trying to use that, so I also want to convert my blog to Middleman now. But my WordPress export's not giving me my entire history, no matter what setting I tried, so I don't know. What's wrong with my WordPress install? Do you have a lot That's of history? That's kind of scary. It, oh, so is it your WordPress install? Yeah, yeah. So it's, like, it's it's your own. So here's, no, it, here's Well, it's at DreamHost, but it's like... Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But it's not WordPress.com. No. So, because here's a, a hack I used to get my blog off of... Because I was on Posturus back before Posturus got aqua-hired. Uh, and... Uh, I, you know, when I had problems, like, exporting my data out of it into a usable format. I went over and imported it. Like, I would do this and download your exports file and upload it to WordPress.com and then download it again after WordPress.com massages it and see if you get different results. Because WordPress.com, since it's, the, since it's Automatic's uh, service, uh, I, I find that the import-export functionality is better than in the open-source build. It's just something to try if you're having issues. Pam, what service do you use? What what do I use? What service do you use to host your site? You said you use a dedicated hosting. Yeah, I use WP Engine, which I I, I was hesitant to to mention them because if I if I like plugged my I, I used to I actually just recently took it down. I had like a referral link on there and some vague attempt to actually have my blog make money. I don't know how to make my blog make money, um, <laughs> but uh. Do you do your blogs make money? No. Yeah. Uh, no, I took mine down. You took your blog down? Yeah. But now with static site generators, you're gonna start a new one, right? <laughs> well, I was using Octopress before and it was just a thing there, kinda it it's probably better that I took it down because it was pretty empty. So so I don't really have a blog. I do have this one section of my website called um, TIL. Uh, it's justincampbell.me slash TIL. So I had an idea because like, I'm not a writer. I don't like writing things. Um, but I do like writing down like tips or you know just code samples or other things that I've learned and sharing those. So I try to make like a, a blog that's more like, here's this one quick thing that I learned. And I did that for you know, six months. And I have a bunch of stuff in a notes file that I want to publish at some point in the future. But I got to the point where, like, I can't... I don't know what I've posted so far. <laughs> and I don't have a search on the site. It, so this is hosted on Rails. And I've been kind of putting off, like, well, I don't really want to add any more until I can have search and tags and other things. So I've been thinking about moving that to Middleman before I continue posting on it at all. Or, <clears throat> or some other solution. Because it's in Rails right now, which is fine, but, like, the rest of my site's in Rails, too. And it'd be nice if I didn't have, like, all these different unrelated things coupled to each other. And I don't feel like upgrading Rails, too. So can I hack you? Hack me? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure I'm up to date. Oh, also, I can't let this episode finish without giving some love to Heroku for being an awesome host for... I think they host even WordPress, but like uh, Ruby, Python, JavaScript, 
Java, Clojure, like any any web thing in any language you have, Heroku can probably host it for probably for free. Um, and yeah, I recently started using Red Hat Cloud too, which is a similar service. Really? How does uh, how does that work? Uh, you you install uh, kind of like I mean it pretty much is like Red Hat's, I believe, competitor to Heroku. Okay. Uh, so it's it's Red Hat OpenShift, and uh, you know you you install a gem. You uh, at least like for for me, I'm uh, like I'm running the the Liberty JS site off of it. So Liberty JS has a a, a single day JavaScript event in Philadelphia, July twenty sixth. LibertyJS.com. Um, because we love freedom, Javon. If you have a problem with it, you can you know, <laughs> haters to so the left. I followed up with "That's awesome." I took my finger off the key that meets me or unmutes <laughs> me. So I'm sorry. But uh, oh, but so then. so so it's you know I I deploy just by just by pushing to you know a remote Git repo and it does the whole you know senses that it is a Node project and does the whole jam. Oh yeah, pressure so. explain how Heroku works. Yeah, so. that yeah. So it's it's it pretty much is. If you don't feel like spooling up all your own awesome continuous integration, you can totally do all that yourself because it really is pushing to a Git repo and, you know, and doing a build. But, uh, you know, it's it's smart about, like, it if you have it configured in such a way, it can tell, like, ah, so this is a, you know, this is the service you want me to run in order to run your app, uh, et cetera. So that's when it's a, when we say, like, that it supports you know, Python, Ruby, et cetera, it's, you know, you can tell it to, to run them and it will, you know, have your version of Ruby or Python or whatever you specify installed in the server and do all the configuration management for you without you having to do that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, if you host your own, like, Rails or Python or JavaScript server, like, manually with a, like, a VPS, don't do that. Use Heroku or OpenShift. So much easier. So do you know if Heroku frowns upon my little hack that I mentioned earlier? No, they're totally fine. I've actually asked um, a Heroku engineer that at a conference once. Um, yeah, they're completely fine with it. Actually, I have a website um, that has a lot of background jobs. So I use a service called uh, HireFire, H-I-R-E-F-I-R-E. And what it does is it, <coughs> it pings Heroku, like the app, Every minute, I think, it makes a special API request. It says, like, how many background jobs do you have pending? We use delayed job, which uses um, the Postgres database. So at most times, there are two web dynos running and no background workers at all. But once a day, when we import a bunch of stuff, uh, we need much more capacity than that. So this HireFire app pings the um, this API and says, how many background jobs do you have pending? And then at a certain time every day, all of a sudden there's, you know, more than one. So it'll spin up like one background worker. And it keeps doing that until we actually spin up 10, 10 workers um, simultaneously. And they take about an hour to do the import, and they shut themselves down. And Heroku's completely fine with that. They, they encourage you to use their platform for scaling up and down as you need. Right, and that's, well, that's because well, Heroku's pricing model is every dyno uh, for the time that you use it. Yeah, and I guess the other thing you say, so Heroku, um, you get one dyno for free, 
but that dyno can go to sleep if it doesn't receive a request for an hour. So like many people, uh, like Len and myself, um, we don't receive <laughs> requests constantly. So it will shut your site down unless you use a service like Pingdom or, or uh, New Relic or some other service to basically check if your site's up every minute, which effectively keeps it awake all the time. Otherwise, when you make a request, it needs to start Ruby and start Rails, which takes about 5 to 10 seconds. Right. And even if you're using it for kind of demo stuff, like you want to show something to a client, they can be really turned off if they go there and it takes 10 seconds for your Rails app to respond. Yeah. But if you pay for a second dyno, which I believe is $36 a month or so, um, both dynos stay awake all the time. Yeah, so that's how they, they get you to, to scale up. Yeah. So are we doing anything special with our middleman? What do you mean? Did we modify anything to have it work in a certain way or like to publish things or to get some metadata? Uh, no, it's just uh, Ruby. I mean, I, I wrapped... Um, we use a middleman blog plugin, which has, uh, I believe, like articles or something. And I basically just wrap that in a method in the config called episodes, because we don't have articles, we have episodes. And names mean things. But no, there's nothing crazy special going on. So Pam, I hear you're writing a book. Yes, so I, I just announced that my book will be in alpha. So I, have, I finished the book a, a while ago, and I've been editing for a bit. Uh, and it's still, I still need to add, probably, like, it just needs to get fleshed out. I'm a very uh, uh, compact writer, uh, and so I, I'm i going to work on expanding the content. But in the meantime, uh, choosing a JavaScript framework will be available for for a, a pre-release download, so you get 50% off the regular price, Since and you, and you get, you know, when there's updates, you'll get updates as they're ready, uh, and... Uh, so that will be available soon. Can you give us a spoiler of which one you picked? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it's one of those things. It's, it's some of the feedback on on the the book draft is that I part of it's that I don't have a pick, um, but then people are like, "What? You have to have a pick?" And it's like, "Well, no. The point is that you know, it's the answer that everyone already knows that you know it matters which for your project." Um, but the book, the idea is to give you an, uh, a better understanding in a, in a short format of what each framework is about, what is, where its strengths are, and then it's kind of up to you based on your personal preferences and the way you like to work and the way you like to build and the way you work with your team um, to decide what works for you. So, like, for example, when the, like if you're comparing Ember to Backbone, uh, there's big differences there in terms of, you know, if you are, if you feel like you know what you're doing uh, in terms of JavaScript applications, you've done MVC stuff before, you, uh, you but, you know, you've been rolling it yourself and you just are kind of tired of it and you want to just go in some, because uh, the idea of a framework is basically an agreement, right, to say, well, you know, when we write, applications we do the same thing over and over again but there's usually there's like whatever some special part of it the interface or proprietary you know algorithms or something that makes our application a magical unicorn but that usually is not like the router or a templating system so it's conventional so, yeah so it's it's choosing to to not 
you said when you choose a framework, you're saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, get on board with what, what many, what thousands and thousands of other people have gotten on board with. Uh, that's a, a well, a well-documented, well-tested platform more so than I could do myself. Uh, and then that's kind of why you buy into using a framework. Um, cause I know that there's still, you know, plenty of JavaScripters who are anti-framework. Um, but I feel like that's starting to, to break down when people realize that there really is just so much of the stuff that you end up doing over and over again. It's just kind of silly to rewrite it every time. It's almost like a, like, it's like the death of the, the proprietary CMS. Like, I do look forward to the full-on death of the proprietary CMS, but pe people still do it. But the fact that, like, why would you ever, you know, hire an agency to build you a proprietary CMS instead of setting you up on a CMS that you can then hire a different agency to work on? So I guess it's in their interest to use their proprietary framework if they're, you know, evil. But, uh, you know, why should, you know, there's plenty of, you know, popular CMSs that people agree upon that other people are familiar with versus, you know, if you have to go in and fix someone's website, if you get hired to do that and they're using a proprietary CMS, it's just a nightmare. And so kind of a similar similar parallel to when people are using JavaScript frameworks. If someone's using their, you know, I've worked on way too many, you know, jQuery apps <laughs> that are, are JavaScript applications essentially where they just kept adding more and more JavaScript and didn't realize they were building a JavaScript application. And it just it just gets so messy. Yeah, I know I really appreciate when I'm on a project and, like, especially, like, JavaScript, like, <clears throat> when there's a clear convention on, like, how to do something and I don't need to, like, figure it out from scratch every time. Yeah, exactly. And, like, we still do that all the time in JavaScript. Like, everyone has their magical unicorn way of, like, building an object constructor. Like, there's, like, eight ways that are, like, perfectly acceptable to do it. I feel like the JavaScript community is just really bad about not falling in line like that. Like, I feel like in in Ruby, we'll have a leading framework that does a thing, and people will just try to change that instead of, like, making making their own. I mean, people still do make their own, but it's not as often as in, in JavaScript. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the trade-off, right? It's, like, at the same time that everything is really exciting... Um, and the people challenge each other by competing, uh, you kind of, you have the, the, uh, the tyranny of choice that, you know, if I don't know where to start, then will I ever? Right. There's a new JavaScript framework basically every week, uh, for testing. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I, I don't, I do not know why people keep writing, writing new ones. It's almost like people like are just trying to get product pro, uh, projects with their name on it instead of contributing to the existing ones. But I guess the saving grace is most of those just, like, nobody uses them. Or, they're, you, like, they're the equivalent of the proprietary CMS. Like, agency that you know, decide to, quote, open source your CMS that then no one contributes to. <laughs> it's not really... It's still your proprietary CMS. Someone asked, uh, do you think in the JavaScript community there's a sense of like contributing to a project isn't welcomed or like there's a scare there? Or I think people I just don't like writing their own. I don't think, or what's so. open I think source it's, like in JavaScript? it's hard to contribute to projects, right? Like, you know, when you do sometimes it just depends you know, a lot of these people who build these great tools 
you know, they aren't people people. And, you know, that's, some of them are, a lot of them aren't. And uh, so if you, if you contribute or, you know, your pull request can sit there for, in JavaScript, like, you know, it can sit there for, like, a month, which is forever in JavaScript world. Like, so, like, if it takes, like, a month, well, then you might as well just ship it yourself, right? Uh, so I feel like that's what sometimes people end up doing. And, uh, and people do see it as kind of a problem because you have the, uh, I mean, uh, people compare it to what Ruby was like probably like five years ago where, you know, what's the right gem to use for, you know, parsing this data? It's like, well, it used to be that gem, but then it got, you know, outdated and didn't update with the new Ruby version or whatever. And so now it's this one that has the same name, but is maintained by a different person. Uh, and it, it's kind of a hassle. I think part of the temptation too is just to like to build it yourself is just how how difficult it is to learn one of these new frameworks. Like if you only have a few requirements for a thing, it can often actually be faster to write something yourself that you understand as opposed to using a framework. Yeah, and if you you're if you're abstracting something that you were already doing, like oh, I wrote this library to do like lazy loading, like there's there's definitely no agreed upon library for lazy loading because it's a it's a decently simple problem, but there's no agreed on best way to do it. So, so everyone pretty much has had their own way, and there's no like one one great way to do lazy loading. So, do we want to do picks? Uh, sure. Do you want to start, Pam? Yeah. So, so besides like losing my mind and not being able to think of that science fiction book that I really really liked, um. So I, I'll have to put it in the, the show notes like next week when I when it when I get a Eureka moment. Um, if you are interested in really cool science fiction about AI and you know in cyberpunk, uh, definitely the the book to start with is Neuromancer. So Neuromancer is a an AI cyberpunk related book. So. The story of a washed-up computer ha hacker hired by a mysterious employer to pull off the ultimate hack. <laughs> dun dun dun! It's really good, and it's—I um, mean, it's like it's like the origin of cyberpunk. Like it's a seminal work. So maybe not the origin, but 1984 book about AI and hacking. Nice. Justin, do you have a pick for this week? Uh, come back to me. <laughs> All right, uh, Jervon. I will be picking the highlight command line utility. So I'm not sure if this is available for, I'm sure it is for other uh, Unix operating systems, but so I'm using Keynote for my presentation and I need code samples. <clears throat> so you can brew install highlight and then tell highlight to uh, highlight a file and then send it to your uh, clipboard, and then you can paste it in a Keynote, and you have highlighted code samples in Keynote. It's really easy. Uh, maybe I should do a blog post on that. Resurrect my blog. So, yeah, the highlight plugin, brew search highlight, and you'll find it. Cool. Uh, my pick this week is uh, Vic Raymond. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, Vic Raymond's Ember tutorial. Uh, Ember is the last framework that I've haven't really played with and uh, I had tried a couple other tutorials and books and always felt like it was too magic-y and I didn't quite wrap my head around it 
this is just it just feels really good every single like step every single chapter is like a has another like aha moment uh, and I think I went through the whole thing in like two hours, uh, just following along and building uh, the app in, in Rails and Ember. And uh, I'm actually uh, starting to really like Ember. So that's my pick for this week. Justin, did you uh, come up with anything? <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> the way I found my pick is I go in my GitHub and I look through my stars and I look through the past week what I starred to remind myself what I was interested in the past week. So I found it. Uh, my pick for this week is howistart.org. So this is a website that basically um, people that are experts or experienced at least with um, a language talk about how they develop in that language. Um, so the only two languages right now are Erlang and Ruby. Um, Erlang is Fred Hebert and Ruby is Steve Klabnik. And basically like what it talks about is you know how to set up your environment and how to go through the process of writing an application or a library or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I really like this because, like, reading a, like, for example, like a book on Erlang, um, I usually get the syntax and I get, like, on a small scale how to structure, like, a piece of logic or a piece of code. Um, but my problem is usually, like, my hurdle when I'm trying to learn on my own is, like, how do I set up, like, the de facto tool chains? Like, how do I, how do I write tests in this? How do I deploy this? Um, yeah, so that's, that's my pick, howistart.org. Uh, so you can find show notes at turing.cool slash eight, and I'll talk to you guys next week. And follow us on Twitter at Turing, uh, Turing Cool. <laughs> Every week Glenn forgets. <laughs> See you guys. Cool, talk to you guys later. See ya. Yeah.